<laughs> Who's your favorite wig? Oh, God. Mine's William Henry Harrison. I... I barely know who the wigs are. Oh, come on. William Henry Harrison. He was president of this country for a month. I... I'll, I'll let you pick Zachary Taylor. You can say Zachary Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> talk today about the Whig Party and okay. uh, kind of who they are, how they came into power, and um, kind of where electoral politics in this country started breaking into uh, what um, uh, I think it was Adams called factions, but what became political parties and kind hmm. of the rise of political parties in the U.S. and um uh, how that really affected how we approach politics generally and maybe some eerie similarities between uh, kind of the rise of these uh, political factions, how they developed and how they mirror a lot of stuff that's happening currently. Hmm. Um, but beyond but, just the question of who your favorite wig is, I do want to pose a serious question to you. Do you think Joe Biden's dead? I have no answer to that. I mean, are, are, are we certain we're not just seeing deep fake videos of him now? Because you'd think if we were, he'd I mean, be a little more articulate. I was always uh, told that you couldn't prove a negative. So <laughs> I, I am not certain that I'm not seeing deep fakes. Um, well, I, I think we're pretty certain that in all the videos he's uh, showing of himself, uh, he's in front of a green screen. It really looks like he's in front of a green screen. The hmm. background doesn't seem the right lighting or the right position or the right scale. It's just a little bit off. Um, Couldn't that just be a rich man sitting in his house in Delaware? It could be. It does seem a little bit off to me. Um yeah. No, it could, it could just be sitting in you know in his house in Delaware. Um, I I always figured that things in Delaware were a little off like that anyway. That the whole place is just a green screen. I mean, I've never been to Delaware, so I can't prove that that's not the case. Um, well, I've never been to Delaware either, and I choose to believe it is the case. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Delaware, um, I do want to actually quickly run through. Um, some kind of like basics of American electoral, the, the party system in America. And this is going to be pretty dry. So I'll rush through it pretty quickly. Um, uh, because I feel like this is something that a lot of people, myself included, um, who may have been, you know, C students throughout the majority of history classes they took and especially American history classes they took might not have the firmest grasp of where political parties have come from in our current, you know, political system. Um, and well, so, I tell you, I got an A in that class, and I don't know. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, doesn't matter so much. <laughs> okay, so there, there was the this group called the Federalists, and um, they're mostly made up of a lot of the same folks who actually were like the the kind of the founders of the nation. Um, they're not really a direct ideological descendant from that, but um, mostly it was this. Uh, 
group of like northeastern merchant class folks who uh, were kind of uh, pro England after the Revolutionary War. Were kind of more like, hey, we need to reestablish these trades, uh, trade routes, stuff like that. Um, and they started seeing this opposition from a group that was called the uh, 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 well, it, it was the Democratic Republican Party. Um, which became the Democratic Party, and that's still very different than any of the modern sense of what we think of as Democratic Party. Right, and uh, that was actually uh, more of a like pro-revolutionary party. They were much more like, yeah, we want to actually, you know, be uh, they're supportive of, like the the French um, up basically up until the point of Napoleon. Um, and this is like the the folks. This is like Adams, Madison, Monroe, like kind of like the classic like early presidents in this country. Um, and it still wasn't like a real political party at that point. It was just kind of like it's a group of people with kind of these similar ideas, and they'd get together and you know say we're all going to try and push these ideas forward. Um, and so th- that that kind of led this like split then to what was then the Democratic Party and something that for a little while was called the National Republican Party. And the National Republican Party was sort of a, like, uh, they weren't really pro-abolition. They were more, they didn't like the idea of spreading slavery. They didn't really care if folks in the South had slaves. It was a lot more of this yeah. kind of Northeast folks being like, yeah, we, we don't really care if folks in the South have slaves. We don't want to have slaves here because it's not a, not a good Christian thing to do. Um it doesn't mean they're like a good party or anything. They were um, actually extremely anti-immigrant. Um, there was some extreme racism still going on there, and they would happily, you know, return slaves to the South that had been, you know, fleeing from the South. They didn't have any qualms right. against that. They just didn't want to have slavery in the North because it's an it's an ugly practice. Indeed. And um, yeah, and so out of the Democratic Party um, came. Well, Andrew Jackson, who is, uh, without a Terrible. doubt, I'd say the worst president we ever had. Unlike William Henry Harrison, who may be the best president we ever had, and I'll get back to that. Um, <laughs> Andrew Jackson was, yeah, just... Absolutely terrible. One of he's, the worst people probably, in history. One um, of the worst people in history, like, post-arrival of Europeans to, to the American continents, he was probably the biggest advocate for... We, just straight up genocide. We, ca- we call it removal in 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 the law, but like, yeah, it was it was genocide, trail of tears, moving. And, and I do want to address that in a later episode too, with the idea of like the trail of tears is not like a single thing that happened. It oh is no, forced marches across the country of scores, not scores, God, gen- of generations of people. Generations yeah. of people, hundreds of thousands. Um, I'd have to check the numbers on it. Uh, out to Kansas or Oklahoma was the destination, I think, for yeah. most of them. Um, Just um, one of the true atrocities of, I don't know, we'll call it colonialism, of settlement. One of the true atrocities of settler culture and the uh, sort of manifest destiny stuff. And that's actually one of the things that, um, out of the Democratic Party, that Jackson, what became known as like Jacksonian politics, what he was really a big advocate for, and that got him a lot of praise at the time, is he was actually really for the expansion of civil rights and voting rights, specifically, for white men only. Um, and 
pretty vehemently was like, yeah, of course, like every human being deserves the same rights as everybody else. And by human being, he meant white male, um, but no longer meant landowner. And that was one of the big transitions from being this transition between, well, yeah, sure. The landed white males can have uh, voting rights to, well, how about all white males have voting rights? And he was actually at the time seen as a bit of a progressive in some spheres because of this. Um, I, and, I, I can imagine like that does sound like an improvement. Yeah. <laughs> and you can argue maybe it was, uh, and at the time the, um, the national Republican party was actually, uh, more against that because they had some views about these, uh, immigrants coming over from, Oh, say, you know, Germany and Ireland that were not really white people. And so maybe they didn't really need to have the same rights as everybody else. Yeah. And particularly um, that with the with the genocide and moving of indigenous people out of uh, at this time, it was in the like Tennessee, Kentucky, uh, Georgia areas. Um, you know, a lot of those places were being settled by Irish and German farmers. Yeah. And so about this time, kind of uh, in still the general um, field of Jacksonian politics, um, the, 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 the Democratic Party being like the party of Jackson at this time, um, there wasn't really a strong opposition to them. Um, more so there was um, this kind of uh, diffuse like spheres of opposition against them. Um, there was the National Republican Party, there was the Anti-Masonic Party, there was the Know-Nothing Party, the American Party, the Free Soil Party, and a kind of the, the Liberty Party. And uh, in response to uh, one of the big complaints about Jackson, which is that he was acting, uh, as many folks said, as a tyrant, uh, he was uh, strongly consolidating um, executive power and uh, a lot of folks said he was, you know, just really uh, trying to make himself kind of a king-like figure. Yeah. Uh, and in response to that, a lot of these other groups formed um, a pretty reactionary, diverse coalition to uh, oppose this. And it was this uh, diverse coalition of. Uh, groups that had this enthusiasm for uh, market forces and things not being controlled by the government, but being controlled by kind of the wills of the market and um, kind of being more generally conservative. And this actually like the, the Whig party is actually where the first party just declared themselves to be a conservative party. Um, yeah. And uh, the Whig party was not a single unified force. It was, um, really some of the first groups we saw that were more of uh, kind of what we would recognize now as a political party. They actually had the goal of uh, getting their folks elected into different offices and organizing a single cohesive message and engaging in some of the, um, uh, the pageantry of having, you know, uh, rallies and speeches and parades and getting everyone really riled up. And part of that was this general sense of like, hey, we're all in this together. Like, it's not just mm-hmm. you guys. You know, it's not we don't have these different ideas. We're all the common man. And we're opposing this king of Andrew Jackson because we uh, need to get him you know, out of the White House. And that's the, the, the big focus, yeah. to get his policies out of the White House. To save the American nation. Yeah. And yeah. 
so they uh, didn't ever really coalesce around a singular candidate uh, at first. They had a bunch of random candidates they brought out. Um, I mean, a wider spread of political candidates than they'd seen at the time. Um, and people from all these different kind of views who kind of all tried to fit inside this Whig message of, you know, we're, we're here for the common man and we want to let the markets decide how to run things, not this, you know, crazy, tyrannical executive. Um, and that actually led to the election from the Democratic Party of Martin Van Buren, who uh, was significantly better than Andrew Jackson, although still American president, pretty evil. Um, who mm-hmm. saw a and massive- the only Ameri- and the only American president whose first language was Dutch? Really? Yes. Huh? I did. What not a fun know fact! That. I mean, it's fact. I mean, it's kind of in his name too, Van Buren. Van Buren. It literally it literally means from the neighbors. Huh? <laughs> There's a whole story about Dutch last names, which is just hilarious. But we can do that another day. All right. <laughs> so after this. Um, uh, uh, election win by Martin Van Buren. One of the candidates he had ran against, uh, William Henry Harrison, uh, decided to run again uh, after this. And uh, Van Buren saw a massive economic collapse during his presidency. And so uh, William Henry Harrison won by, I believe it was like 53% of the vote. He got a, a huge amount of the vote and um, did very well in the election. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing that makes uh, William Henry Harrison, I think, one of the best presidents of U.S. history is that a month into his presidency, he died and therefore did not have any time to really do anything super evil. Like he just didn't. He, he's one of the only presidents who never did anything really bad in any way because he didn't do anything. Um, wow. He just, yeah. All right. Yeah. He's uh, not, okay. not, not, not the worst. Um, yeah. But I, I believe that uh, the way he was elected shows this um, similar paradigm to what we're seeing currently, where there is this uh, tyrant in the White House using a uh, unprecedented amount of executive power to push through what a lot of folks are considering pretty um, extreme measures that are hurting the country as a whole. And as such, there is this push amongst the opposition to gather a diverse collective of uh, similarly leaning, political-viewed folks and kind of trying to reach out to more quote-unquote fringe groups to bring everyone under this one banner so that they can kind of pool their resources and try and get someone in to just get these uh, horrible, you know, Democrats out of power or in the current state just to get Trump out of the White House. Right. And as William Henry Harrison only lasted a month in office before uh, dying of pneumonia, um, I would My God shock. Oh, yeah. No, I know. It, it gets weird. It gets <laughs> it weird. Was n- it was pneumonia. Too. Wow. Yeah. Okay, I kind of I kind of see where the where this can go now. Yeah. Um. Well, uh, he died of typhoid, uh, pneumonia from typhoid. Um. And uh, okay. at that point, yeah, and John Tyler succeeded him into the 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 office. Um. Tyler is a 
uh, not not the most evil president, but he's still a president and still pretty evil. Um, well, it, it comes with the office. Yeah. And so uh, now that brings us kind of more toward so – that's, that's the general view of how the Whigs uh, – came into power i actually do want to point out that the uh, the know nothing party is uh hilarious um they Does are know nothing <laughs> that's uh fairly close uh they were an extreme anti-catholic party um that was uh, uh kind of operated in secret they weren't like an actual political party they kind of were this network of conspiracy-minded folks who are all like, you know, we're going to get rid of these Catholics in our country. Mm-hmm. And if any time they were questioned about the existence of the party, the response was, I know nothing. Ah! <laughs> so you're not, you're not <laughs> far from it. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm looking at sort of a basic rundown now, and it sounds like there was probably some overlap with the KKK of the time. Yes. Yeah, no, and this is this is why. Well, now that well, I you, think you start, that the KKK didn't exist yet, they, they did not. These so. this, is, this is the anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic uh, wing of the Republican Party, which did very much become the party of Lincoln and the party of the abolitionists. Uh, right, but this is still before they're abolitionists, and this is still before it's a Republican Party. This is when there was this uh, kind of groundswell in the Whig Party that was pulling in all these other groups. And the know nothings got swept along because they just didn't like the Southern Democrats. Right. So it looks like, though, they had a lot of success in the South. So I'm betting that many people who were associated with this went on to be supporters of the KKK well, after and, the war. And that's part of the thing with the Whig Party. Um, yeah. The Whig Party did split over the issue of slavery. Um, there were the Northern Whigs, which were called the Conscience Whigs. And they were the folks who were um, uh, more abolitionist leaning. They're folks more concerned with like the uh, yeah. You know, it was this sort of uh, did uh, they name themselves the conscious the conscience Whigs? Uh, I don't know if that's actually a name they chose for themselves or if that's something that's been imposed on them historically. Because because that sounds like uh, I don't know the compassionate conservatives or. Uh, don't, don't think know. of it that way. Don't think of it as that. Okay. Think of it as um, because the other side is called the Cotton Whigs, and they are very pro-slavery. Um, it was a North-South Sounds divide, like and it was really just a uh, are you yeah. concerned about you know uh, keeping these trade markets open with uh, European powers that are starting to be more against slavery, or we yeah. want to keep you know the Southern production of uh, crops that is um, slavery produced. Um, so it really is more of a – it's not – It's maybe compassionate conservative is a good allegory to it, but it's not that they were folks who actually well, had even some delusion that. of like, well, we're actually the good ones. I didn't There's mean like, the no, political comparison. I didn't quite mean the political comparison. I meant more the um, – like sort of the names that people come – like the sort of propaganda names, you know, the, the conscience wigs or, you know, common sense – you know, regulations, just words for that were like, oh, you can't be against conscience. You can't be against common sense. You can't be against compassion. That yeah. that sort of like naming convention. I'm not sure. And I'm really not sure if it's someone pointing at them as saying uh, they're the ones who actually like the, the, the conscious wigs, conscience wigs were the ones who ended up being the 
precursors to the Democratic Party and the uh, Cotton Whigs ended up going into the Southern Democrat Party. Mm. Um, it's, I'm not sure really which uh, direction any of it took. Yeah. And, but anyway, but that, that all uh, really fell apart right before the Civil War. Um, the party is consolidated into um, essentially a three-party system for a very short while, where there was a Republican Party, the Whig Party, and the Democratic Party. Um, and the Whigs lost uh, horrendously as their party membership bled into the Republican and Democratic Party, um, which, of course, you know, uh, did have a membership and uh, kind of ideology swap around the uh, turn of the century, which essentially made them new parties that just swapped places. Um, yeah. Which is... Yeah, especially with the uh, with the Southern strategy. Yeah, well, not even so much that. I mean, that's definitely a part of it, but it's as far as the uh, Democratic Party being concerned less with states' rights and the Republican Party being concerned significantly more with market forces. Right. Um, which is, I think, even pre-Southern strategy. I mean, yeah, Southern strategy just solidified uh, what was already a shift that was happening. I just uh, so. give, give a sentence on explaining that, so... So if folks don't uh, so know like what the, Southern strategy was, they can... Um, the Southern strategy uh, started in the 60s, late 60s, um, by the Republican Party, because before that, before the Civil Rights Act was passed and before the Vi Voting Rights Act uh, was passed, the South tended to be, uh, you know, sort of the homeland of the Democratic Party uh, of the time, um, which had continued since the you know since the civil war and, and after it so it kind of started to change in the early 1900s uh with uh with ideological shifts which you know which you brought up and it looks like the you know to me i would say those ideological shifts happened because of the change in economics and in, you know industrialization uh and foreign policy that changed um but by the 60s uh this was this was i think it was nixon that really yeah. Uh, ran with this strategy uh, to essentially use racism, you know, the racism of many, many, many most white people uh, in the South as a political campaign tool. Um, and so uh, with that, it solidified the South as the base of the Republican Party and the switchover uh, for the Northeast and the Midwest uh, to be kind of the basis of democratic power. Okay, and and that's shifted now with the Midwest becoming more. Uh, there, there were some other things that went on that like literally made the Midwest more conservative over time because of the oil industry, and thus support for the Republican Party. But yeah. that that goes into a lot. Okay, um, so I, I feel that we have seen in our lifetimes sort of a similar. Uh, push against executive power that uh, the anti-Jacksonian forces had um, kind of consistently and from both sides of the aisle. And some of it is uh, in good faith. Um, some of it is not. Um, I'm thinking of you know, just that in uh, in 2008, the election of uh, Barack Obama was yeah. a uh, the same mustering of this, you know, diverse coalition of 
forces to kind of fight the the uh, the neocons and try and get them all out of power. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of that was this sort of general part of the the, the rhetoric behind it was that we are. Uh, you know, reestablishing law and order because these neoconservative forces have ended up like twisting, you know, what it means to actually have uh, like executive power because they've used the Patriot Act to give themselves these massive, you know, surveillance powers, war powers, uh, control over the economy. Yeah. And there was this push of like, we're going to have a real progressive change in this country and we're going to take that power back and give it back to the people. And the Democratic Party sort of maneuver maneuvered itself to be the public representative of that. Yes. Even um, even though they approved it the entire way and continue to approve it. Oh, that's the thing. That's, 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 I think it's yeah. part of it is facetious because they never dismantled that executive power. They let it sit with a president they liked and actually expanded it in some ways with Obama. I mean, the oh, yeah. um, executive power for drone strikes, my God, the white paper that um, approved the uh, extrajudicial assassination of um, American citizens. Um, yeah. Which, uh, if you ever get a chance to read the white paper, it's um, pretty boring but horrifying. Oh, I should read that. It sounds to me like it played a similar role to the torture memo under the Bush administration. It came out after the uh, killing of um, oh Anwar uh, Alamarki, uh, the uh, the sixteen-year-old. Yeah, the sixteen-year-old. Oh, the sixteen-year-old. Um, um, and it basically said that the the U.S. president does have the power to order drone strikes even against U.S. citizens. So long as they're outside the U.S. borders. Uh, no, that actually was no? changed. Yeah, no, they can use drone strikes okay. inside U.S. borders. It was That's uh, never been the... 100% approved. The closest we probably got was during the Chris Dorner, uh, right, police chase where he was hiding in uh, cabins out in the Sierra Nevadas, right, and. Well, and they didn't, actually did they use military drones? They use them just for thermal imaging to try and find right. Them. Yeah, um, before they burned them alive in the cabin. Um, yeah, yeah, but I think they also used a, a drone, uh, not not like a, a flying drone, but a, um, a you know, but a wheeled ground drone with an explosive to kill the shooter in uh, Las Vegas. Um, no. He killed no? himself. Okay. So the story they, goes, they, or they attempt, or they attempted to do that. I think, but um, the kid who was murdered by Obama with a drone strike was Abdurrahman Al Awalaki. Okay, that's my that's um, my best pronunciation. Also, I think you, you you should not say it as the kid who was killed by Obama by a drone strike because um, boy, oh, there, were, there were lots. Yeah. Um, who was targeted specifically? I think no, by, he was he was collateral damage. His father was targeted for anti-American speech. Um, right. Okay. All right. Point that being, the executive it. power has not really didn't really decrease under Obama. Uh, it expanded, and despite the fact that uh, a lot of progressives, myself included, started uh, screaming and pounding at the bars of our. Uh, establishment e cage yelling uh you can't have this power still be invested in the executive because once you get someone worse in there again they're gonna have all that same power um and everyone seemed kind of okay with that from the democratic establishment because they believed that they were such a shoe in to have uh 
someone like Hillary Clinton win the presidency. <laughs> and I don't think they were like always 100. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the whole like they tried to coronate her. I think it was like, yeah, she was the person they had lined up for a while. But I think if they'd found someone else who looked like they were polling well, they would have gone for them as well. Um, as long as they you know wanted to play by the rules of the the game. Right. Um, which, you know, gets into an issue then of what happens when the progressive elements of this uh, diverse coalition decide they don't want to play by the game anymore. And so what happens when you do have this, yeah. you know, uh, third party type uh, candidate who is starting to rally some populist force that says no we don't want the return to the status quo we want to actually change paths yeah the status quo has been the problem yeah yeah and um, what you get there is you get the bernie sanders 2016 campaign right which i think is useful to think of because i believe that bernie had no idea that he was going to be as popular as he was. <laughs> I think that came as a real shock to the campaign. Yeah. I think that came as a shock to the establishment. I think that really yeah. did. Um, I think it was probably less shocking to him uh, than, it, than it was to uh, the establishment. I think the establishment don't get it. They don't understand his appeal um, because they personally don't deal with the problems that the rest of us do, deal with and see Bernie as almost a solution. Um, but, well, but I also think... The idea of what that, political parties are, I think it's yeah. it's important to recognize that the Democratic Party is not a political party. It, How do this, you mean? Political parties' goal is to win elections. The, the Republican Party <laughs> yeah. is really well, good at being a Democrats. political party. <laughs> the Democrats' role is to protect elements that fund their political party or their their organizational structure. Their job is to maintain the status quo. That is what they do. That's what they've always done. Yeah. And so, they don't want to see any market disruption. It's it's neoliberalism. They want to maintain the strength yeah. of the markets. Republicans I mean, don't care about that. They pretend to and they lie about it and they say, you know, like, oh, these democratic policies are going to destroy the economy. But all they do is they throw red meat to their base and they win elections. They know what they are doing. And Democrats have right. these kind of broad platitudes um, that they have to give out because they can't make any real concrete promises. Because yeah. if they make a real concrete promise, then they have to actually follow up on that. So instead, it's these right. very broad, oh, we're all just in this together and we have to all vote blue no matter who. Mm-hmm. And We need unity in this country. Yeah, and that's why we're seeing them push Joe Biden now because Joe Biden has on record told millennials to just suck it up and has told bankers that nothing will fundamentally change. Yeah, he's told and that folks he would who be, are, and that he would be willing to have a Republican as a vice president. Yeah, which just which just goes to show, like, and, and this is like very consistent with the Democrats constantly giving in to Republican demands. This has been like for twenty years and more. They've oh, yeah. just constantly given in, given in, given in, given in. They've never really won a fight the way Republicans win fights. Yeah. We can see that um, now. We see like Republicans, yeah. you know, uh, opposing these pretty moderate uh, ideas for you know uh, policy changes or uh, financial changes by just actually taking the board and going home. 
by yeah. saying, okay, which yeah, is, we're going to lose this election. Okay, we're going to remove the powers of the governor. Yeah, We're going to lose this election. We're going to actually just not vote on it. Which is, I, I think a lot of people, especially liberals, that that infuriates them. Kind of the, like, it, it, the same way that like you're playing that game and then the, you know they, they flip the table and walk away. Yeah. And how that like infuriates everybody else who's playing. Uh, but in a broader context, I think people have to understand that this is a legitimate political strategy. It um, is. And when, and when I say legitimate, I mean politics is not just inside the, co- inside the confines of constitutional uh, governmental disputes. Politics is much, much broader than that and it affects everything in our lives. And so when you see it that way and you see what their strategy is um, to win, uh, it's extremely effective because... I mean, there's really, that you know, quote of, you, you can it. play chess against a pigeon all you want, but the pigeon's just going to knock over the pieces and shit on the board and walk around strutting like it's won. Yeah. And if, you, if you're getting angry at the pigeon for doing that, you're misunderstanding the game. The game is yeah. not to actually make the best moves and actually have the best, you know strategy and actually be able to like you know uh, get the right decisions made you know and then and then have the supreme court be your referee to make sure that it's all fair yeah um that's not how it works no the game is to get popular support so you can actually just ram shit through and then eventually you have the entire federal judiciary on your side and then well and you do that but you make it so that you don't need popular support, which is what the Republican Party has done so far. And I think that, I think especially especially liberals <laughs> don't understand the dire situation that we're in, where the Republican Party is close to reaching the point where it can establish essentially a one-party state uh, through its elections meddling and through the Electoral College uh, because the new census is someday going to happen this year, and the Republicans control almost all the state houses. They control most of the state houses, and they're going to control the redistricting, which is going to allow them to uh, control national politics for, in many ways, an indefinite future. I'm channeling my inner liberal right now, but isn't that <laughs> not fair? Yeah, no, it's not fair. But uh, wait, are you telling I've me been, politics been, isn't fair? I've been, I've been told by many people in my life defending unfair things that life isn't fair. But so, at least politics should be fair, right? Yeah, I, I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that's been well, a general. No, I mean, it's a general complaint yeah. from the uh, from liberals from 2016 on through uh, the current election. There yeah. is really this sense of uh, with with like Clinton, it was well. It's not fair that uh, Trump is allowed to say all these horribly offensive things, and it doesn't ever uh, blemish his record. But you know, Clinton has some bad things she said in the past, and that's being used yeah. against her. That's not fair. And saw the same thing, you know, with uh, uh, Pointing out in this election different uh, faults and foibles with the uh, whatever twenty-seven Democratic candidates, yeah, and people saying, "Well, you can't point out that they said that thing five years ago. That's not fair to bring that up." 
You know, <laughs> Joe, Joe Biden voted this way five years ago. That's like, why would you bring something from five years ago? It doesn't really matter right now in the current context of voting. Well, Joe Biden was just a proponent of something. Yeah, but you know. when you advocate, like, when you're a politician and you have the kind of power that Joe Biden had you know, as a senator, he was a very powerful senator. Um, and, you know, and then president of the Senate, uh, because he was the, the vice president. Yeah. Um, you know, here's a man who voted for the Iraq war, but honestly, it's not the voting for the Iraq war that is so offensive as, um, he voted for it, continued to advocate for it and still has not apologized, still has not said I was wrong to do that. Well, I think it'd be very easy to say, uh, yeah, well, I, I, you know, I think the, a, a lot of folks who voted for the Iraq War can say, "Hey, listen, I, uh, hey, hey, listen here, Mac, I uh, was lied to. I didn't know what I was going into. I just voted for it." But he doesn't have that ability because he was actually on the intelligence panel and actually was able to yeah. see what was going into the Iraq War. Right. And, um. Yeah, and to some degree, like. There's no way that anybody in Congress can really be blameless, uh, you know. So even though I'm saying it would be better if he apologized and recognized that what he had done was wrong, uh, it's it, I still doesn't I still don't think that, that would make him make him an acceptable leader. Um, not that there are any acceptable leaders um, in in any of the political parties, but. Uh, yeah. By the way, actually, I did have that yeah. wrong. It was um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, not Intelligence. Right, uh, but you still you still get some confidential information by doing that. Uh, so I think we're kind of at the uh, like modern political context parties. Yeah, um, and yeah. Well, I, I think that um, what the current state of the Democratic Party is, is that Joe Biden is absent during a crisis. He's the front runner. He is the one everyone has thrown their support, their funding, everything yeah. behind. He has disappeared either into um, – uh, some cryogenic frozen chamber. They thaw him out once a week so he can give us like little rumble, rambling, mumbling speech to uh, CNN, yeah, uh, where he forgets his lines and loses his teleprompter and wanders and off literally stage. Say, and literally says that I should probably stop talking right now. Yeah, which you know, to some degree, I, I respect <laughs> that there are presidential candidates who recognize that sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but if you have to say that out loud, man, you need to not be doing this. But I'm convinced that uh, he is going to be the Democratic Party's William uh, Henry Harrison. I think that they are going to have him, hopefully, they're going to try and push him through, uh, at least to the convention. And then yeah. either at the convention, post the convention, or sometime before the actual race starts, they're going to try and do like the Indiana Jones like bag of sand versus gold idol swap and just kind of slide Andrew Cuomo in there. And, um, that's the theory then. 
that's my theory. I think that they're going to push Cuomo like crazy right now because he is being hailed for his coronavirus response across mm-hmm. New York right now. Um, he's yeah. popping up in almost every uh, like you know kind of mainstream media news uh, magazine right. and the website saying like, "Hey, look, it's, look how presidential he is. He's acting so presidential. He just boy, yeah, I know he want a strong God. leader like Cuomo. No, which I mean, hey, he did They're, like legitimately use you know slave labor this last year." Um, in response to the coronavirus crisis, he used prisoner labor to make hand sanitizer. Um, which right. I mean, yeah, it's it's a good move. It probably saves I mean, lives. A, At the same time, it's using fucking use slave than, labor. Yeah, um, you know the New York carceral state is large. Um, Although and, it doesn't and, the idea well, of like doesn't he have like uh, Harvey Weinstein being forced to like make hand sanitizer for people before he gets coronavirus and dies in Rikers kind of an amusing thought. I, I don't know. I know the cognitive distance it's, is it's, hard, it's, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's, hard, it's hard for me to feel amused by many things now, mm. but uh, like it, it's also, it just belies everything about how the, the elites in this country uh, see us and, and also in many ways, their geographical world. Um, I, I, have been talking to other people about this, but, uh, and, and it should be clear to our listeners, uh, by now that, you know, that Trevor and I live in the Western part of the country. Oh, that we do. Um, that we yeah. do. You can tell cause I say um, Nevada and not Nevada. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, so like, all governors are terrible, but not all governors' responses to this disaster have been terrible. So Cuomo gets a lot of this attention because he's loud and he gets, you know, he gets in Trump's face. But also, uh, he's from but, New York, and also he's from New York, which is where all of the elites are from. It's where all, you know, if it's where most of the media are centered, uh, they're usually based in either New York or DC. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the West Coast, uh, the governors there were far more proactive far sooner um, than, than Cuomo was, you know, particular, you know, particularly in Washington, that's the case. And, you know, I have no love for, for Jay Inslee, uh, but I will say this is like he took a very serious response a lot faster than, uh, than any other governor has. Yeah. Um, and so at the at this point, you know, and there's no reason to believe that New York uh, wasn't, you know, didn't get infected people around the same time that Seattle did or San Francisco or, or no, L.A. I mean, all, all these major hub cities um, likely had infection spreading for a while before. Ar- yeah, really and was, probably around the same time. Um, but it's in New York that the hospitals are completely overwhelmed right now. Uh, or starting to be completely overwhelmed, it's going to get worse. Uh, and that's not really going on in Seattle um, or, or L.A. Or, or the Bay Area that I, that I can tell of. Uh, and so Cuomo's being uh, praised and, and pushed, uh, you, know, at, you know, promoted as a leader and being presidential um, in many ways because he, he's having to pan, you know, do a panicked response because he didn't do stuff soon enough. 
Yeah, it, it's now that he the <laughs> the uh, reality of the situation is set in. Suddenly, he has to act, and right. because he is forced to act, he's acting decisively. And and to be really honest, we haven't seen a lot of decisive action from our government for the last few years. We've seen a lot of, no. uh, uh, I mean, pretty horrific policies being put into place, like the uh, border internment camps well, and I mean concentration camps. I mean, there's been decisive action, but it's been decisive action to hurt people. Yes, um, yeah. but I feel a lot of these things were plans that were already made that have been. Oh yeah, put into place. no, if it's, you, it's not, if it's you not want a to, novel reaction. Yeah. All where, the where evil seeing, shit that this government does, the plans were sitting on a shelf somewhere long before it happened. I mean, you got to remember, while Joe Biden was president, you know, he he, he was part vice of president. the administ- vice president. While he was vice president, yeah. he was uh, part of the administration that you know, Obama was called the deporter in chief. There's multiple right. photos that circulated of like, how look how horrifying these, you know, Trump uh, prisoner camps are on the border. They're like, no, these are the Obama prisoner camps on the border right. that have kids sitting and, in cages. It's like, the, and it, the camps are still horrible. You know, it doesn't take away from the evil that Trump did. It doesn't. And it's definitely gotten worse. It's and the shutdown of the uh, asylum process, all this has gotten worse. But you know, it's not, not, not to mention the, the almost purposeful spread of coronavirus in these detention in, in the concentration camps. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm really scared. We're going to get some bad numbers out of this, um, of unreported deaths. So that when this is all over, we're going to find out that it's had a massive death toll in our prison system overall. And particularly in these concentration camps where we've already seen folks denied medical treatment, dying from the flu. And right. Don't want to get too maudlin about this, but uh, yeah, well, it's going to be. We, li- we um, live in shitty times. Uh, shitty times so, call for a shitty situation. Uh, no, no. <laughs> so I think I, you know, we've we, we've talked a lot about the the party system in the United States, and I I, th- I think. At some point, I'll want to go in depth about the decades-long conservative strategy for turning the uh, for turning the U.S. into a one-party state. Yeah, uh, but I think I think it also is useful to take a look at um, other countries' uh, liberal democratic systems. Yes, um, in part to point out that they're garbage too. Um, that I. Yes, parliamentary systems with multiple parties uh, do some, do sometimes actually offer more and better choices to an electorate, uh, but that doesn't mean that you're actually getting fantastic policy out of them. It doesn't actually mean that those governments are taking care of everyone who needs to be taken care of, and uh, it doesn't under it, it doesn't attack one of the fundamental premises of liberal democracy that I think is a huge problem. Uh, so, so that fundamental premise of, of democracy, and, and you can hear this propagandized by many people, per, particularly liberals, uh, which is that the extent of our political participation uh, in liberal democracies is to vote in elections. 
that's yes. all we're expected to do. That seems well, to be the end point. It's considered of, to be the bare minimum of its, you know, well, hey, you don't like it, get out and vote. Right. Um, and, and it's expressed with uh, Democrats in particular and, and liberals they uh, exasperation, like it, frustration, <laughs> and fury at people who don't vote. Um, and they don't really seem to understand why people don't vote. Um, and, and there are many, many reasons that people don't vote, but I, I would say probably the number one reason is because people think it doesn't matter. Um, and, uh, even though I, I do vote, I, I also agree with those people. Um, it, it really doesn't matter much. Uh, so, but, but that seems to be the premise of every liberal democracy that, Political participation is basically limited to voting. So that means that your political participation, unless you're about to put in a lot more effort into the system, like showing up to to, uh, city council meetings and campaigning for candidates and uh, doing all these other things that don't necessarily have direct power in the political system like, like a vote does. Yeah. Um, or at least conceptually has. Uh, so what it means is that when you live in a liberal democracy, your ability to express power uh, is limited to one day every two years, maybe. Yes. Uh, and it's my belief that uh, that if you're going to live in a democracy uh, where you know, from, from the from the Greek meaning, it's it's the government by the people, right? Um, when you only express your political will once every two years, yeah, you are not in charge. <laughs> yeah, the people are not in charge. Um, the idea that you can call that democracy is just fucking ridiculous. Uh, so that's that is the structural problem with all liberal democracies is that uh, it's the equating voting with the same as having power over government. Well, and I think that that is uh, kind of one of the big myths that we've had uh, throughout the the last century is that, uh, yes, we all have the right to vote now, um, you know, generally speaking, still there is disenfranchisement of felons in a lot of areas. Um, but the idea that yes, we can all vote. Therefore we all have the same voice. Therefore we can all participate in the system. Therefore it's fair for everyone. And Hey, if you really don't like it, you can go protest. You have the right to free speech. It's important. You can get out on the streets. And, um, I mean, as, as, as Jarvis Cocker said, um, yeah, it doesn't matter if cunts are still running the world. I mean, it's, if the people who are in charge of this country are still, if they don't care, it doesn't matter how fake progressive they are. We saw that with Occupy, one of the largest, yeah. like, populist-driven protests about the uh, rampant inequality in both representation and in uh, wealth, uh, access yeah. to medicine, everything. And yeah. uh, the response from the um, uh, sort of styled progressive president at the time was silence. 
Pretty much. And it wasn't yeah. it wasn't disapproving. It wasn't saying, you know, you can't you can't protest because that would of course you have some really big First Amendment concerns. Right. But it was just kind of ignored um, while we had folks, you know, driving military right. vehicles into uh, crowded camps and uh, firing tear gas at peaceful protesters. Yeah. Um, it, uh, and then he did nothing to uh, to condemn that. Um, it, and, and that continued on. Uh, you know, so 2011, that was in his first term when Occupy happened. And it should be, uh, people should take note that that Occupy, the, you know, one of the biggest basically anti-capitalist protest movements to happen in the modern U.S. happened while Obama was president. Oh yes, um, you know, not while I re- not while a Republican was president. Uh, well, but, the, I mean, the other to, side to of fair, it is there were there were anti-capitalist protests, the WTO protests going on, um, which I mean really started kind of at the end of the Clinton presidency, going right. into the Bush presidency, um, um, which were then pretty those, heavily derailed by nine eleven. But um, yeah, is I would say that there was a definite difference between the WTO protests and Occupy. Um, oh, of course, because yeah. I, I would say that Occupy was riddled with some ideology that made them uh, incapable of actually achieving the political ends that they had, um, whereas uh, the protests um, in Seattle again, in 1999 against the WTO basically put an end to... Uh, you know, over the course of the next couple of years to, it, it basically put an end to the WTO as a major player in deciding trade policy. That's true. Um, and uh, to, to make it very clear to people, the difference was that uh, whereas um, Occupy occupied a space and really didn't get in the way of a lot of things, they uh, the sat protesters the street and played drums from banks and, and waved their fingers. Um, Which fingers? What? <laughs> uh, and and I, I don't want it to sound like I think Occupy was bad. I, I think that some of the most devoted, uh, intelligent, best activists I've ever met uh, that I've ever met, they got their start in Occupy. I, I think it was an awakening for a lot of people, um, and for many of those people, uh, they were they became disillusioned after Occupy uh, was suppressed by various governments. So oh, we're going to talk about that later on as well, because yeah, boy, I have um, some thoughts and some opinions and some feelings about <laughs> Occupy. But uh, the protests in Seattle are notable because people broke shit. Oh yeah. Battle for Seattle um, is a real thing. I mean, right. Were- you know, they, it was called a riot, um, though a riot is a very, you know, it's a very relative term depending on uh, who the government wants to label as, uh, you know, as a problem, uh, because uh, it it should be clear to people that breaking windows is not the same as beating people, um, that breaking things is not the same as violence against humans, uh, and equating the two is is. I don't understand. Well, like, you know, I, I don't get You do it. have like so, the, um, the, uh, it was, uh, Proud Boys. Yeah. It was Patriot Prayer, like Proud yeah. Boy associate folks who, right. um, in front of uh, a cider riot up in Portland, which is just funny because of the name. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> just, you know, going there just after, I think it was after some protests and just seeing a bunch of, you know, people in black who they assume were all, yeah. you know, black blocked Antifa folks and, you know, engaging in physical violence, by which I mean running up and sucker punch people in the back of the head and hitting them with metal bars and shit like that. Yeah. And it took a while for that to be treated as a riot. Where I think a lot of yeah. uh, the uh, actual, you know, like black bloc folks who were in the Battle of Seattle smashing Starbucks windows, that was treated as a riot pretty quickly. Yeah, um, that was treated as a riot pretty quickly, but it was also extremely effective at achieving its goals. Um, they disrupted the w- WTO meetings and, uh, and it affected WTO policy in the years to come. Uh, I don't think it achieved the ends that uh, the protesters necessarily had in mind. Um, but I, I don't think it can be disputed that they did have a very significant effect on it. Uh, which just goes to show that when it comes to protests, the ones that are most effective are the ones that disrupt. Because if you're not, if you're not, if, if normalcy is maintained, then the state has no reason to respond to you. And that's when I saw a lot of uh, during Occupy was there were a lot of places where after seeing, um, you know, police brutality, uh, people actually did petition the cities to say, well, where can we hold our protest? Where can we go to actually have our sit in and, you know, where can we occupy? And they asked the cities (laughs) for permission of where they could occupy. And the city would say, okay, this park, and they'd give them a location and say, we're going to give you a permit to do a protest here for, you know, eight days. And they'd send folks out from, you know, the like financial districts of cities into like, well, it's a more kind of like uh, less populous urban area. And you can go sit there and have a little tent city for a few days. And eventually you'll get tired and go home because you're not actually doing anything. (laughs) It didn't disrupt stuff. Um, No, it got attention. Uh, but, yeah. but that was kind of the limit of it. Uh, at least when it came to affecting political change. Uh, but you think about then, so going back to the idea that, you know, just voting for the uh, more, in theory, progressive party won't save you if neither party is representing an actual change. Right. Right. Um, yeah, that, that, that pretty much sums it up. And there, you, you will be hard-pressed to find a party in any parliament or Congress that actually represents the interests of changing things. Well, no, because they're um, in the establishment at that point. Exactly. If, if they've worked hard yeah. enough to get there, it is extremely rare they're going to see them being the ones saying, yes, and now let's fundamentally change how much power I have. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, and let's you know, fundamentally the, 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 change the, the system that allowed us to get into power. Yeah, it's the rule that anyone who is qualified to be president, anyone who seeks the presidency, should be immediately disqualified from ever being president. Yeah, uh, because if you've worked your way to a position of power where you have the means to, this is you know very generalizing, but if you have the means to become president, you should be disqualified from it. Well, a you know I I'm an advocate of no presidents, uh, so I think I can get behind that. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I, 
I think it, it then uh, is fair for somebody to ask. Uh, so if my if my vote doesn't matter, and if the parties aren't going to change anything, uh, and I you know I have these political goals. I want to make sure that everybody has housing. I want to make sure everybody has food and water, and education and healthcare, and and everything they need. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that they don't, they shouldn't have to struggle for that stuff. Um, if I can't achieve that through elections, through voting, through supporting political candidates who say they support what I support, uh, then what can I do? You can wait for a natural disaster, to like such as a you know massive worldwide pandemic, to shake things up a little bit, so that all of a sudden people start realizing the necessity of, oh I don't know, access to medication and housing and you know some sort of basic standard of living. Yeah, um, but those only come around once so, every like hundred years or so. So, well, there's there's always a disaster. So I'm talking about like what political action can I take? Uh, if I'm here on the ground. So yes, we're in a pandemic right now and it's it's basically the only thing that I, anyone can think about. And it is clear that on the ground mutual aid organizing is an important part of uh, political organizing in crises. But I think it's also an important part of any political organizing. Uh, so if you, if you look at the most successful um, left-wing political movements, uh, both in, in the US and in other countries, uh, they were built off of, off of mutual aid. They were built off of providing services to people that the state and general society refused to provide to those people. Uh, yeah. So that's a huge start. Um, and, how you and, organize and examples it is, broadly, I mean, just like... Um, um, uh, the Black Panthers absolutely come to mind as the most notable example uh, in, in U.S. history. So the Black Panthers were... Uh, a Maoist political party led by uh, by black people, um, with probably the largest centers being in Chicago and L.A. But uh, but the Black Panther Party was uh, actually grew to large numbers, tens of thousands, uh, and had offices I think in hundreds of cities. Uh, and while the Black Panther Party um, was was best known for its uh, community self-defense, uh, you know, with firearms in particular. The classic pictures uh, of the guys standing there in black leather coats carrying shotguns. Right. Which, which they specifically did that uh, for the propaganda reasons because, uh, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, uh, you had a lot of, like, college students and comfortable middle-class liberals who... Uh, thought that was really cool and were willing to donate to the Black Panthers because that aesthetic was attractive to them, uh, even if they weren't actually going to be involved on the ground. Uh, So that was a a major way that the Black Panthers fundraised. And uh, and it was very consistent with the Maoist ideology they held, which I think was uh, what motivated them to do this mutual aid on the ground uh, that came in the form uh, the best known program is the uh, the uh, Breakfast for Children program that the Black Panthers uh, instituted. Yes. They saw that uh, kids in their communities were uh, not being fed enough. And so they decided to set up kind of a cafeteria style uh, breakfast program that 
uh, allowed them to feed the kids in their community before they went to school each day. Uh, and which I mean, we're seeing that um, now on some level of just you know, uh, in response to kids who were getting their lunches through or through you know school lunch programs. Right. So there's a reason on mutual aid networks. Yeah. So the the school lunch program actually started in in the 30s, if I remember correctly. The school breakfast program didn't start until I think the 70s or 80s, and it was actually started in response to the Black Panthers because the federal government rightly understood that that was the base of the Panthers' power, their ability to provide this mutual aid that the state was unwilling to give, uh, and so. The, the government's response was, well, we're willing to give it now. So we're going to institute a school <laughs> breakfast program based off of our school lunch program that um, I think it started based off of a school milk program even before that. Uh, it's, it's been a long time since I've read up on that stuff. And well, I think that shows uh, in a way that it's not only just, well, the government's not providing this people, therefore we're going to have to have mutual aid programs and that will provide for people. It's not just a Band-Aid. It is in some no, ways showing not. the efficacy of a program and showing that there is popular support for these programs that, I mean, local clinics would be phenomenally useful right Which now. Which is exactly the other, you know, that was the other bit of mutual aid that the Black Panthers did were local medical clinics. That was a huge part of their on-the-ground activity. So, uh, and that's also and, something and that grew out of it, Occupy. It doesn't come out is as well historically, or I guess is like as what we've been taught historically, that these programs were not focused on the black community. They were usually in um, black communities, but they were, they were accessible black for anyone in the community, regardless. Of exactly. Race. Yeah, and I think I think it's it's really important to note that uh, even though the Black Panther Party was centered on black people and their liberation. Uh, the leaders of the Black Panther Party, and I think it was, um, I think it was Fred Hampton in particular, uh, though I could be confusing it, who uh, specifically sought out um, alliances with gangs, including white gangs. Yep. No, they sought out um, the white supremacist gangs and got them involved in helping out with the same mutual aid programs. I can't remember the gang now, but there was a gang that actually did yeah. fly the uh, Southern Battle Flag as its like, right. colors. I think they're a motorcycle gang. They were, yeah. But after some uh, work with the Black Panthers, the gang stopped wearing those colors. Yeah. It's like, yeah, basically stop, basically through showing like, hey, we're all in this together. We can work together on this shit. They actually got a white supremacist gang to stop being white supremacists. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which was a huge part of the Black Panthers message, actually, is that even though it was you know, led by black people, it was still a party for class liberation. And uh, when Fred Hampton went and talked to gang leaders and uh, just talked to regular people who, who weren't members of any of these organizations, that was always his message, uh, was that, um, you know, that race is used to divide us, uh, that the elites, that the capitalist class are screwing you over too. So we have we have to join together because that is their greatest fear, and I st- you know and that's still true. Um, I think one of the greatest weaknesses, though, uh, and this is also consistent with their Maoist ideology, is that they had a centralized party structure, um, which made it uh, in many ways easier for the federal government to target and murder uh, their leaders. Yes, which is something we um, saw, you know, in um, uh, both Occupy 
and in some ways the Black Lives Matter movement, um, a lot of the folks were there was a very decentralized organizational structure which um, made it hard for the movement to be stopped with uh, arrest or uh, yeah. I mean, Occupy, there were, there were, Occupy, I, there were no I mean, murder conspiracy with it. That's the thing. Is That's why I'm trying to yeah. hedge my conversation. Well, on there, that. Are, there are some suspicious uh, deaths of uh, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, that's why I said Occupy, because uh, yeah. Black Lives Matter protesters have been found uh, suspiciously uh, in trunks of cars that have been lit on fire with bullet holes yeah. in their heads. I mean, just the stuff like that's a little bit, you know, suspicious. Uh, yeah, <laughs> and um, like like a slew of organizers from the Ferguson uh, Black Lives Matter right movement. Um, um, so it's so that's really the the base I, I think of any successful political organizing uh, that is outside of the political parties uh, in in this country and any country. So if you want to build political power, you do it by demonstrating um, what, it, what it is you want to do for the community, which is provide it with, uh, with all the things that it can't get, food and water and, podcasts. Sta- and security. Um, <laughs> podcasts are praxis. <laughs> uh, sure, we'll keep telling ourselves that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and... You don't have to organize it the way the Panthers did uh, with a centralized party structure. I think in many ways that that wouldn't be I think that would be even less effective in the states today than it was uh, in the 60s and 70s. Um, so having a more dispersed, though coordinated uh, movement for mutual aid and political action, um, including political education uh, for people who get involved with mutual aid uh is a very solid step to the future, um, and we're gonna and we're going to desperately need to do more of this, uh, especially in the wake of this pandemic. You know, so when when the pandemic ends, and we're left with a depression that we're going to have to live in, um, things were oh, things are going. Oh, trust to get, me, I'll be living in a depression. <laughs> <laughs> things are going to get very turbulent, and people are going to want answers, and they're going to want. Uh, some new ways of thinking about the world. And so that is a very good opportunity um, to help people understand the system that put them where they are and how they can get out of it. Yeah. So uh, the idea, I think that we need to not rely on voting to get any real change in the system. We need to start looking at more of, uh, mutual aid programs that we can actually implement in our communities that actually end up helping other folks um, in the immediate short term, but that also have uh, kind of the populist impetus to keep these ideas at the forefront. What do we actually need to keep people surviving in our society that can then hopefully be implemented by a progressive political agenda but at the same time, recognizing that we do also have to have uh, disruptive protests that are not just fitting inside these predestined rules of the system that uh, allow the, the the status quo to be maintained. Right. I I guess I would disagree on the point about 
for progressive campaign agenda or political agenda in, in part because I, I really dislike the term progressive um, and and because uh, to me I see I see the point of the mutual aid and uh, political organizing on the ground not as something to build a nationwide movement around I think the idea of having a nationwide movement is uh, unachievable because uh, in many ways the conditions that we live in in different parts of the country are quite different, uh, especially when it comes to how we can provide for ourselves. Uh, and I also don't think that there's any good reason for us to really support keeping this country together as one country. So. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I am uh I, I'm down for the balkanization of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think we both are. Uh, I think it would be a net positive. Um, but yeah, how's that for a close? Ah, it's, it's all right. <laughs> I don't know. This this one was a little more rambling. That's all right. It's a long road. Um... <laughs> and we don't really know where we're going. That should be clear by now. <laughs> We will get um, there together. <laughs> we'll get there together. All right. All right. Talk to you all next week. <laughs>